your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Solom. All right, welcome to a Monday of Lacrosse Talk PM, a Martin Luther King Jr. Monday. And to kind of talk about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I brought brought the expert in, Keith Knudsen, Viterbo University professor of political science and probably history. I, I feel like there's more than one thing you're teaching over there. Sometimes I think you're more of a history professor than maybe political science. I do teach a lot more history courses than poli-sci. Uh, we don't, uh, unlike UWL, Viterbo has no poli-sci major. So as a political scientist, I do teach a lot of history. Um, how much of that incorporates Martin Luther King Jr. as Viterbo is set to host the community celebration tonight? It begins at 7 p.m. Um, at the main theater, the... Uh, well, where is it at? What is it called? The uh, In the Fine Arts Center. Fine Arts Center. There we the go. The program is also being live streamed. If people go to the D.B. Reinhardt Ethics and Leadership Institute Facebook page. If you go to wisdomnews.com and look for Eric, Eric's uh, story, Eric Weinberg. I talked to Eric last week. Oh, okay. Uh, just look for the, the universally loved Martin Luther King Jr. Thought of as a radical then. Uh, at the bottom there, I put a link to the Facebook Live page or where it will will end up at 7 p.m. But, um, you know, you, you've been part of this celebration for a long time, right, Keith? I, I have been on the organizing committee uh, since it's been at Viterbo. Um, and that's that's almost 10 years. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not certain of the exact number. We've had, uh, since we've had it at Viterbo, uh, Rick Kite and the uh, Ethics Institute have helped our organizing committee get some pretty high-profile names uh, to come and speak. Um, Alan Page, uh, Minnesota State Supreme Court Justice, and, of course, former professional football player. Um, Ruby Bridges, uh, famously painted by Norman Rockwell, the problem we all uh, encounter. Uh, she went to a all-white grade school in Louisiana, I think, in 1963. Um, uh, we've uh, had uh, uh, some number of, uh, uh, well, last year, of course, uh, William Barber, uh, the head of the Poor People's Movement, he used the address to the lacrosse community as his national MLK address, um, more than 12,000 hits um, for our program last year. And this year you have Dr. Sylvia Hood-Washington on um, over 30 years of research experience, uh, Kind of addressing the impact of industrial pollution on human health—that was—that's—that's that's a it seems really complicated that the issue that she's trying to tackle there. It is, but uh, there is a, a, a racial component to this. Um, uh, poor communities often located near industrial production sites, and so the contamination out of the industrialization process, the production of oil refineries, plastic. Uh, uh, other uh, pollutant uh, industries, uh, often black communities are in those neighborhoods, and those people then are negatively uh, impacted in their in their uh, quality of health. Yeah, in a whole different uh, ways, right? Uh, a whole bunch of different ways. Just the <laughs> probably the water quality might not be as good, and just the, the the environment as well. But also like your property probably isn't worth as much when you're next to a big old you know pollutant polluting or pollute looking factory a factory that's blowing smoke all the time isn't going to be the greatest backdrop for your home for your home for sure um 
Um, so do you do you expect her to talk about that quite a bit, or you know what what do you think she will talk about? Well, I I, I think that that's a lot of her uh, uh, professional research. Now the impact of uh, the pandemic on minority communities, uh, people who are in um, uh, what did we call it essential work. Uh, those who could not work at home and, and, and therefore isolate. So the pandemic has had an inordinate uh, uh, impact on the lives of minorities within the United States. Yeah, I just got back from Gunderson. They're holding a, they're holding a rally there. It's probably, I think it went till 5.30, probably wrapping up if anyone's driving by. Gunderson on the south side there, we'll see probably 50 people uh, with signs uh, calling for better wages, better working conditions, uh, trying to hire more staff because I think uh, they're understaffed and overworked at this point. A, a lot of people, um, you know, in talking to a couple of the workers there, the, the idea that, you know, I'm like, do you have to work more overtime or, and it's like, well, A, we have to work more overtime and B, we have to just work more while we're doing it. So instead of just being, you know, instead of there being two nurses, there's one and then you're doing double the work. So, well, our healthcare workers uh, dealing directly with, uh, People who are infected with uh, the virus, some of these healthcare workers then are getting sick, and so the number of people's on their shifts undoubtedly has to be less, and so fewer people have to deal with more patients, um, and for longer hours. Our our healthcare workers have made stupendous. I'm going to call it sacrifice in the last two years to do their best to keep people alive when they come into the hospital and to help us, uh, 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 those of us who've been fortunate enough not to uh, be infected, to, to stay away from this this um, virus. It's just interesting, too, because uh, I know Gunderson has a minimum wage of $15 now. I think they've done that over the – I'm not sure if they did that in the last year or two, but maybe. Um, but uh, the idea that more people are having to go to the hospital for COVID or it just seems like there's more people – the Gunderson's doing more business, so to speak. So they would be making more money. And therefore, are they passing that money to the workers? Even if it was temporarily, hey, we're going to give you hazard pay for the next six months because you're double doing double work, uh, maybe working more hours. But I don't, I don't see that ha- happening at all. Well, I think uh, I'm not a healthcare expert, uh, but uh, one thing we read in the newspapers: selective, uh, elective surgeries. Um, in these crisis moments uh, are canceled. And so many health delivery establishments across the country, hospitals, are uh, not able to engage in the health care activities, surgeries, Mm -hmm. that I think are probably um, the more expensive element of uh, healthcare, and, and keep in mind, Gunderson. Um, I think Mayo as well. I, I don't. I know less about Mayo. Actually, the the, the health, uh, the, the hospital uh, uh, health delivery I uh, uh, subscribe to. Um, uh, but uh, I do know Gunderson is a nonprofit, non-profit organization. Yep. So, uh, what does it mean to make profits when you're a nonprofit organization? Um, Gunderson over the years has invested a lot of money back into the community, um, back into some environmental developments, um, and of course, uh, if we have, if we think we have some of the best healthcare in the world, gee, well, maybe our healthcare professionals should be some of the best paid in the world. I understand these workers uh, 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 that you saw today are sacrificing tremendously, and. Uh, 
these are the people who are standing between us and illness or even death through the pandemic. They deserve to be well compensated. Yeah, and you're right. Maybe maybe the it's it's a it makes me itchy to talk about it. Maybe the healthcare, maybe the hospital isn't making as much money as it would running normally because maybe COVID isn't the quote unquote moneymaker because of those surgeries aren't happening. It's just a weird way to put it because it's making money, so to speak, but they're you know, they got that's that's if, Well, if, we live in a, a society that has uh, gone down the road of uh, well, as Ronald Reagan said, everything can be done better in the private sector, and we're, we're on the profit motive. Money, money decisions are determining a lot of our social institutional decisions. Um, so money indeed does make the world go round. That's Keith Knudsen, Viterbo political science and history professor. We're going to talk a little bit about tonight's celebration, community celebration at Viterbo. It starts at 7 p.m., so I stole him for an hour before... Uh, he's got to head down to Viterbo, 608-785-7914. And then, you know what, we'll probably get into uh, some, some more political talk uh, since I got you in here, Keith. Uh, we've got we've got to catch up, I think, on a lot of things that have happened. We've got a lot of catch-up to do, Rick. All right, Brad's got to do the news. All right, welcome back to the Crosstalk PM, 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line if you want to get in here, 608 608- Seven eight five seven nine one four. I don't know why I always run through that, Keith. Like everyone has the number memorized. Uh, Keith Knudsen's in here, Viterbo University history professor, political scientist. Uh, you're not getting on stage tonight, are you? No, no. You used to. You used to. Uh, well, at the end of the program, uh, those of us who are uh, part of the organizing committee, we will join the Viterbo choir and um, uh, sing "Lift Every Voice," sort of the national anthem for african uh, american aspirations when uh viterbo you know started hosting this 10 years ago tonight they have dr sylvia hood washington on and it sounds like she's going to have a pretty interesting conversation and a question and answer portion where no, people can... uh, that's not going to happen oh, that's uh, not. we would have done that if she were here in person but she oh. herself is immune compromised and so with the spike with omicron uh okay, she so we... chose not she's going to be on the screen uh, even in the main theater. All right, but we can't ask her questions, so to speak. Uh, no, there will there will not be a Q and A session. All right, fake news on Wisdom's webpage. Uh, no, there. just a clarification. Yeah, uh, she's. But anyway, it sounds like she'll have a pretty interesting conversation to have. And um, back in the day when it wasn't at Viterbo, did we was the guest speaker you ever? <laughs> One time, uh, the committee must have been at a remarkable low point. Um, I, I was invited to address uh, this event at English Lutheran Church, um, and uh, one of the great honors of my life, Rick, uh, uh, was to have been asked to uh, to speak uh, to this event. Well, what's what's the most interesting part of Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of you know whether it's you know there's so many aspects of his life that you could take. Also, it just seems like maybe we've hijacked his name and his quotes. To, you know, for for whatever, you know, a lot of it seems like a lot of politicians. Ah, it's, it's the day that I need to find a Martin Luther King Jr. quote to uh, to put on my social media to pretend that I stand for what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for. And it, I feel like um, not everybody in uh, the government is is exactly standing for what he stood for back then. Yeah, not everybody in our society as well. Um, it, it, it's a testimonial to the the, the towering accomplishment of Martin Luther King while he was still alive and um, to have gone forward in such a public way 
uh, and of course then having been assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, he gave that I've been to the mountaintop speech shortly before he was killed. And who knows if he had any inkling that he would be, but I think there was always that risk. And of course, what are we dealing with right now? The risk of black men, especially young black men, of being stopped by our policing agents and potentially being shot and killed. Um, and uh, this is a, a, a late 20th, now 21st century phenomenon. And, and black uh, Americans have experienced this terrorizing of their daily lives by those who do not appreciate their presence for centuries in this country. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that is still uh, an, uh, an element of our existence in the United States today. Yeah, it seems like we've probably made some progress in that regard uh, based on, you know, where where United States has come from with the black population. Uh, but now with, I think, with social media and the, 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 the ability to capture stuff on camera, uh, maybe this has always been happening, but it, it looks like it's happening more now. But because only because we can see it and and it kind of, you know, oh, now, you know what, this brings this issue forward now that we can see this on camera more often. Yes, um, I, I think uh, being able to um, witness these things uh, through uh, modern technology from 1890 until 1920, Rick, on average, every three to five days, a black person was lynched in this country. Um, so this this terrorizing of black lives has been part and parcel of our society from the get-go. Uh, of course, the first 70, 80 years of slavery, um, uh, black human beings, uh, almost exclusively slaves, maybe one, two percent of the population freed, um, uh, they lived a life of terror every day they were counted by our government as three-fifths of a human being. You know, women were sexually uh, used by their masters, by those who were uh, uh, overseeing their their daily tasks. Uh, there were public floggings. Uh, they were threatened to be sold down the river if they didn't uh, do as they were told. Um, and then uh, the Civil War comes along, uh, 13th Amendment ending slavery, 14th Amendment making um, presumably at the time African-American people citizens, what we today some people complain about birthright citizenship, and then the 15th Amendment giving black, freed black men the right to vote. Um, but of course in 1876 when Reconstruction ended, the tables turned and we went into Jim Crow segregation. The statistic I cited uh, from 1890 to 1920, um, uh, lynchings, and then uh, the Tulsa race riot of 1921 or two, 500, 800 people killed, just a, basically a war. Um, and uh, just this gutter, gut instinct animosity towards our fellow Americans who just happen to have black skin. That is, that's a deeply ingrained element of our, of our culture. It's funny you talk about the, it's not funny, but interesting you talk about the Tulsa thing. I didn't know about that. 
but just like that, that wasn't a thing that was taught to me in, in high school or I, I didn't take those classes in college either. Um, I had to learn about that through an HBO show. <laughs> like, and it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it, it was a, a, a you know, a, a fiction HBO show. It was just, uh, it just happened to a documentary. And, no, it wasn't a documentary oh. at all. It was a, it was a, oh. it's a, it's a superhero show, so to speak. Oh. Um, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I, I, my girlfriend's, you know, a better history buff than I am in this. I'm like, is any of this real? And she's like, oh yeah, this happened. Obviously it's being portrayed differently, but this was a thing that happened. I was like, wow, I didn't even know that. You know, in 1919, uh, uh, there was a summer of violence against African-American peoples and uh, uh, black Americans had served in World War One. In the victory parades, uh, President Woodrow Wilson refused to allow our black soldiers to, to march in the victory parade. And uh, there was a real fear in this country among white people as um, these uh, World War I black veterans came home that, that they were going to try to implement the ideals that we thought we were fighting for. We were fighting to make the world safe for democracy. Well, does that mean that black voters are, are going to get the chance to vote? Does that mean that black voters will get to voice their aspirations in a public forum um, and uh, have a, 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 a an equal voice, if not in equal numbers, but an equal voice of us individually of expressing what would they want the United States to become, to be? And should they be living their lives? They should, of course without the fear that um, uh, people who don't like them are going to uh, take after them. I mean, Ahmaud Arbery was killed, what, a couple years ago. The three men who engaged in that murder, they're going to prison. But for how long did this behavior go on and it was not addressed? Right. They, it, they only addressed it when the video came out. Hey, by the way, this guy was basically modern-day lynched. And uh, they hid that for how long before, oh, this happened? How many and years the local ago? policing agents were not going to charge them. It had to get bumped up to higher levels. You want to throw, can you reach those? Yeah, you want to throw those out. Triple Tom is calling. Triple Tom, you're on with uh, Viterbo political science professor, history professor Keith Knudsen. Go ahead. The first thing I'll say is <clears throat> the greatest speech of my lifetime was the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. Having said that, you kind of, at least I think, Rick, you asked the professor uh, what would be one good takeaway from Martin Luther King that she could kind of add to your repertoire of, uh, of sayings or slogans. And that came from that speech, and that was, judge a man by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin, because that sums it up 100%. And everything else just simply tries to get to that point, but that sums it up, and that's on my only point. Boy, Tom, thank you for that. Those are really uh, uh, important words from Dr. King, and, and uh, that, that's a wonderful contribution to this conversation. Thank you so much. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line. Viterbo history professor, political scientist, Dr. Keith Knutson in here with us. We'll be back. All right, welcome back to the Crosstalk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line. Keith Knutson, Viterbo history and political science professor in here with me, uh, kind of talking about Martin Luther King Jr. on this day, uh, his day. And uh, I know Sam Sam has been waiting. I'm going to get Sam on here, Keith, right away, because he's been waiting to talk. Uh, Sam, you're on the air. Go ahead, man. Hey, I, my question is, I wonder, 
and this touch, touches base with the uh, healthcare shortage workers, um, what Martin Luther King would think about, um, you know, are, are there any minorities that have been fired from their position for not being vaccinated? And is that something he would consider to be a, a civil liberties violation? Or at the very least, do you think that he would have care and compassion for, for both sides of, of a difficult situation, one that, uh, you know, has experts on, on both sides with, with their own opinions and lots of, lots of feelings and emotions running high, but, you know, everybody wants to do the right thing. You know, where, where would he come on? Would he at least welcome a friendly discourse on the matter? Yeah, if I understand uh, your comment correctly, Sam, um, if there was a, a black uh, healthcare worker who wouldn't get vaccinated and a white uh, one who was doing the same, the white worker gets uh, fired and would uh, Dr. King advocate for the black person to get fired? I, I can't answer that, of course, but uh, I do think that the civil rights movement was about achieving equality. And so in that circumstance, equality would dictate, hey, if there's a, and now there is a mandate, the Supreme Court has uh, upheld the Biden administration mandate that healthcare workers have to get vaccinated, um, the, uh, uh, the aspiration of being in that regard colorblind. Now, I don't really like that word colorblind because, of course, we're not colorblind, but uh, uh, the idea the administration of justice should not favor or disfavor a person because of the person's skin color, religion, gender identity, whatever uh, whatever our personalities are about. Um, I, I can't help but imagine that, that Dr. King aspired to have a, a society of equality because as a black American, he was painfully aware of an unequal society. Um, and I, uh, you bring up a, a really interesting and a challenging point, Sam. Thank you very much. All right, that's uh, Dr. Keith Knudsen. Viterbo is hosting a celeb- community celebration tonight, 7 p.m. Uh, at the Fine Arts Center's main theater. Dr. Sylvia Hood-Washington, the, the keynote speaker there. Um, and you can find a link for the if you want to watch this online at wisdomnews.com. Just look for the Martin Luther King Jr. stories. I think there's a couple of them. Uh, and the links are in there. But, um, you know, sticking with, with Martin Luther King, Keith, uh, you know, I, last week I talked to another Viterbo history professor, Dr. Eric Weinberg, about he him not being king in his heyday, I so, so to speak. He wasn't that well liked. Uh, what what would he be like now? I mean, would he? We we don't really have this kind of person now, do we? That that would. I mean, what what would if King was alive today? How many people would be rallying behind uh, what what he says? Because back then, you said to me off the air, he had a sixty one percent disapproval rating uh eric said he had about a 25 or so percent approval rating so he wasn't all that well liked back back then he was perceived by the um, i think majority of white people as a threat to social stability um today we know that um our millennial and then gen z uh, uh younger people are much more um inclined to aspire towards, uh, I'm going to call it racial justice. Uh, so that uh, uh, I think today, uh, if, if King were to be here, uh, he would be much more supported. But hey, we, at this moment, we are 
uh, engaged in a great political debate. Uh, there are, I think, 25 states trying to restrict uh, uh, voter access. Whose voting access are these states trying to restrict? Poor people, minorities. Um, uh, we today are in a, a, a circumstance not comparable to what Dr. King confronted, um, because legal segregation still existed. Of course, there was the Civil Rights Act, 1964, and then the Voting Rights Act, um, ensuring that uh, black people would be given uh, access to social institutions, the right to, to vote and participate. But of course, the US Supreme Court uh, took away the uh, uh, capacity of the government to look at what local governments are doing that might be restricting voters' access. Um, and uh, we're back in uh, some soup. Uh, these things just don't go away. The Supreme Court seemed to think, oh, we've been doing just fine uh, for the last 30 years or thereabouts before their decision to get rid of the uh, a provision of the Civil Rights Act uh, uh, being uh, for the, the, the Justice Department to look at uh, what are localities doing in terms of voter voter access? Um, we're going in a backwards direction on that topic, uh, and we need to address it. And with gerrymandering in a state like Wisconsin, and then um, the disproportionate uh, voters who send uh, senators uh, to the United States Senate, uh, we're living under minority government right now. That is, in the last election, uh, uh, the presidential winner uh, got 7 million more votes uh, than uh, the presidential loser. The one prior to that, the winner got 3 million few, fewer votes than the loser. Um, uh, Republicans in the, the Senate represent something like about 44, 45% of the population. Um, we need to find a way to get accurate representation so that people's full voices are going to be heard in government. Uh, what what were some of the accomplishments? Can you can you point to certain things, uh, you know, specifically that Martin Luther King Jr. You know, the, the, these these were the big things that he. he well, the, the civil rights movement certainly uh, uh, brought about the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, 1964 and 65, which moved African American peoples more uh, people uh, into. Uh, more of a, a, a joining the mainstream of American society. But of course, the, the, the backlash to that uh, has been uh, what we're seeing now in states like our own. Uh, the state legislature wants to prevent felons from uh, voting. Uh, our, our state legislature gerrymandered uh, uh, more extensively than any other state in the country. What, what are the people in control of our legislature trying to do? Restrict voting rights. Was that the main thing? Just like voting, and then today, if you were here today, would it be voting the biggest issue for for him? Or ending segregation—that is, uh, whites-only signs in, yeah. in de, jure, de jure illegal segregation in the South. But what do we discover here in the North? De facto, in fact, we have segregation. What's the third most segregated city in the country? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Where is the infant mortality rate the worst in this country? Milwaukee. Where are educational outcomes for black kids um, uh, some of the worst in the country? Milwaukee. You and I, as, well, you're a citizen of Minnesota, um, but uh, uh, working here in Wisconsin. We in Wisconsin, we've got our work cut out for us. And I'm sorry to report that our state legislature and the representatives there are 
um, at least from what they've been, how they've been performing so far, are not at all interested in addressing these problems um, of, of social injustice. That's Dr. Keith Knudsen, history professor, political science professor at Viterbo University. Viterbo hosting a celebration tonight, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It starts at 7 p.m. It's going to be at the Fine Arts Center Main Theater, and it'll be online. Uh, check out our story at wisdomnews.com to, to get that link. People can get that link at uh, the D.B. Reinhardt Ethics and Leadership Institute Facebook page. I go, you know, if you go to, uh, if you go to facebook.com slash Viterbo Ethics, that's where it'll be. Uh, you can find it there. 608-785-7914 is the talk text line. One more break, and then we'll do a little general political talk here with, as long as we've got Keith in. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line. Dr. Keith Knudsen in here with me, the Turbo University professor. Uh, getting a text in here. Milwaukee is controlled by Democrats, Keith, so it's Milwaukee's fault that uh, all those stats you threw at us. Well, uh, yes, Milwaukee is controlled by Democrats, but what uh, what what's the tax base in Milwaukee? Uh you know that, that that that's a common uh, throwback, but we are a collective, and so if the city of Milwaukee is struggling within our own state, what kind of obligation do we have to help our fellow citizens? I think we have that obligation. Uh, the person who wants to talk about Milwaukee, run by Democrats, um, state of Wisconsin, uh, right now in the legislature, run by Republicans, um, and under Governor Walker, a total. Uh, uh, Republican control. Might they have done something to help Milwaukee in those eight years? I don't think they did too much. Yeah, uh, but if you're going to say the state's run by Republicans, I'll just say, well, Joe Biden's the president. So, well, and he has control of the government. Point, point well taken, but the Democrats are uh, trying to uh, distribute some uh, money down the, the funnel to address some of our social ills. I had, I had this conversation with William Garcia, the Democratic Party chair, a couple of different conversations I had, and also one with uh, UWL's political science professor, Dr. Anthony Jagoski, uh, just uh, just throwing this out there. Tommy Thompson, 80-year-old, uh, recently off surgery from a water skiing accident, uh, threw his name into the ring for governor of Wisconsin. Uh, what, what do you think of that? Do you think he would, I, I guess he, he would have to get by a primary with Rebecca Clayfish. I'm just I'm presuming, you know, if there were others, there are others. Uh, but what what is your opinion on his doing that? Well, Tommy Thompson, one of the great political figures in Wisconsin history, the longest-serving uh, governor in our history, um, I wonder how in tune he is with his own party these days because his party has become pretty enthralled with Donald J. Trump, and I don't think uh, former Governor Thompson was uh, such a fan. So uh, I wonder if he can actually win a primary in his own party these days. Well, if you're playing armchair quarterback, Ken, if he's going up against the Rebecca Clayfish, who recently said she raised about $3 million uh, for this, what, gubernatorial race. Uh, that's such a weird word. I hate that word, honestly. Governor's race is what I like to call it. Um, you know, you put those two together, Tommy versus uh, Rebecca Clayfish, what do you think? I think it could be a pretty close contest. Touchdown, touchdown and a half? How many points? <laughs> Uh, well, I, 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 I wouldn't want to predict that. We've not seen any public opinion polling. Um, but I, uh, uh, for me, I wonder if 
Tommy Thompson is still in touch with the base of the Republican Party um, because I think it has been transformed somewhat dramatically uh, with the uh, arrival of Donald Trump on the scene and uh, Ron Johnson, U.S. Senator, uh, uh, Robin Voss, the head of the Assembly. Um, uh, We've mentioned the former head of the Senate, uh, who's now in the Congress. Some of these people have become pretty dedicated to Donald J. Trump. I wonder if they consider Tommy Thompson um, history and uh, deep history and not so interested in having him in the race. Yeah, it seems surprising to me that um, William and Antrigoski, kind of the same sentiment, Tommy Thompson would have a, a harder time beating Rebecca Clayfish and then if he got if he ended up doing that and went against Governor Tony Evers in, in a statewide election for governor, uh Trigosky, Trigosky said that Tommy Thompson would win and William said the opposite, obviously. William's gonna he's the Democratic Party chair here in La Crosse County, so I think maybe he has to say that. But um yeah, he's he said that it would be a harder race for Tommy to get by Rebecca Clayfish than Governor Evers. Um, I, I think trying to predict outcomes uh, that we don't even know if the candidate's going to be in the race is uh, not exactly sound political discussion. Um, look, uh, but great well, talk Evers, radio. Evers, Evers, great talk radio. There you go. Um, Evers beat um, an incumbent two-term Republican, close race. Um, his approval rating, uh, uh, you know, upper forties, I do believe, close enough that. Uh, uh, depending upon who the candidate is, uh, Evers has uh, maintained some pretty solid support, in my estimation. I think he's going to be a uh, a tough incumbent uh, to to beat. Now, if we reel this in a little bit, obviously we have a third congressional race going on here. We might even have a state senate uh, special election if Brad Paff were to to win a congressional seat uh, running for. But what do you see as the Maybe the, you know, well, let's just jump into the third congressional race. The the idea of uh, there's multiple Democrats, five, I believe, running for this seat to uh, face what is going to be most likely Derek Van Orden as a Republican. Um, how do Democrats going against each other and the Senate, right? There's a dozen Democrats running for Senate uh, in Wisconsin to, to go against Ron Johnson. How do Democrats set them set themselves apart from each other? And then to and then to go against the Republicans. Yeah, that's a big challenge in a, in, in a primary race. Um, they'll they'll select particular issues that they want to advocate for. Um, I'd stay right here in the third congressional district right now. Um, Brad Paff uh, f- from the Lacrosse area, uh, having uh, worked in Ron for Ron Kine's office. Uh, Paff is. Uh, in my estimation, uh, someone who would carry on with the policies and the approach of Ron Kine, that is, um, staying close to the issues of the district, uh, not trying to, um, uh, let's say, grandstand, um, and uh, a very uh, moderate approach to politics. Uh, I think uh, uh, Brad Paff has shown himself to be a very capable campaigner. He beat a tough opponent to win the state Senate race, that is Dan Kapanke. Do you think? Uh, do you think it's what's more important? If Brad Paff were to win the third congressional seat, and he's going against Rebecca Cook, Deb McGrath, Brett Knutson right now in in the Democratic race, and then Derek Van Orden, if he were to win that that seat, the congressional seat, um, is it the smartest move by Democrats? Because then we're giving up a state senate seat, and the state senate 
is is up by one, right, for having a veto-proof majority. I believe it's one senator. And then this race, obviously, in the Senate, this district, was really hard to win. So you're almost conceding or potentially conceding the state Senate seat in terms of getting... No, I don't think the Democrats would be conceding the seat. Uh, there are some very well-qualified Democrats to run if PATH were to win... Um, uh, a race, uh, presumably it will be Van Orden, and Derek Van Orden seems like a, a, an outrider uh, in our district. Um, this district has gone for Donald Trump, but I think that fever is beginning to break. Um, and uh, uh, Derek Van Orden showed up at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, he's, if not an insurrectionist, he apparently is an insurrectionist supporter. Um, I just don't think he is. Uh, the caliber of person that the third congressional district wants going to Washington to represent us. What do you think of having 12 candidates run uh, for the Democratic position for Senate to go up against Ron Johnson? That just seems like way too many. And then, uh, you know, that'll fall by the wayside. Uh, Many of them won't have money to uh, actually uh, engage the campaign. Uh, you mentioned that Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, was here in town today. He is ahead in the, the so-called money race, that is, getting campaign contributions. Uh, there will be three or four viable candidates um, by the time we get to the primary. And uh, it's just an indication that people think that Ron Johnson is is a, a vulnerable incumbent, which he is. He promised to run for two terms, and now he's broken his word. Who wants to vote for someone who doesn't keep his word? And we just got a minute here left, so I'm going to throw the, the biggest question at you. The, we've seen the, uh, I call it cosplay, the fake electors, the Republican electors uh, in different states, including Wisconsin, before January 6th, going to Madison, casting votes for electoral votes for Donald Trump. We're starting to see this in the news. Have you paid any attention to this and maybe the, the, the consequences for it? Yeah, I, I have paid some attention, and I think one of those, uh, I'm going to call them faux electors, is a gentleman from La Crosse, Bill Feehan. And uh, uh, he doesn't hesitate to put himself out uh, in the public, but I think he might have used uh, greater judgment in uh, how he thought he was going to try to impact um, our election process, because I think these people uh, deserve to be held to account. Yeah, the uh, we talk about voter fraud. Well, this is this seems like electoral voter fraud a little bit. Well, this is an attempt to overthrow a, 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 a democratically held election. This is in uh, the last election we had was the the cleanest and most effective election in counting votes and uh, lack of. Uh, uh, any kind of monkey business that, that can go on in elections are across this country. Our election officials ran a very clean election. Donald Trump is trying to demean that. And people who buy into that are buying a big, fat lie. And uh, when they buy that lie, they themselves then are undermining our system. That's Dr. Keith Knutson, Viterbo, history and political science professor. Uh, going to be part of the, well, I don't know how much of a part of the celebration, community celebration tonight at Viterbo, 7 p.m. at the, I always forget the name. Center Main Theater. The Reinhardt Center Main, Main Fine Theater. Arts Fine Arts Center Main Theater. Or, or uh, let's see here. Go to wisdomnews.com. Click on that link at the bottom of the story. You can check out the Facebook Live video as well. Keith, thanks a lot. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you.